Anyway, good morning. I'm Emily. I'm one of the co-pastors here. And I'm just going to dive right in here. We're, we're in the middle of an evangelical sermon series. And last week we talked about telling the truth to ourselves. And so this week I want to talk about telling the truth to others. But I want to warn you that this sermon's going to be, it's going to have like a little bit of a different feel than most of my sermons. Um, I'm going to use some of the words that come from more of the prophetic and apocalyptic traditions. So apocalyptic just means unveiling, right? So literature and those traditions are meant to like tell the truth about what's actually happening when cultures and societies and faith traditions are in trouble, right? It's meant to like remove a veil from our eyes. And so this kind of writing actually permeates quite a lot of the, the scriptures from the prophets all the way through to the book of Revelation. And so this morning, I want us to look at some of the stronger words of the prophet Ezekiel as well of, as Jesus um, to help us name and to denounce harmful religion. Now, that word denounce might sound a little strong. And the idea of like denouncing harmful aspects of Christianity, especially if we're talking about specific forms or traditions from which many of us come, myself included, or where maybe we still have friends and family that are part of, and that's me included as well. Like the idea of that can make us a little uncomfortable. I know it makes me a little bit uncomfortable, but I think that this kind of tradition is meant to make us feel uncomfortable. It's also meant to be comforting to those who have been on the short end of the religious stick. So apocalyptic teachings, they, they serve two essential purposes. The first one is that apocalyptic teachings denouncing toxic religion or ideologies, they give voice to the anger of those who have been mistreated by it. It helps them to name the harm. And I find that for many people who have um, experienced like abuse in, some, in certain systems, it's really validating and healing to hear other people also um, denounce the mistreatment alongside them. And the second thing that apocalyptic teachings do is it's meant to kind of jar people out of apathy, right? It's meant to kind of like wake us up from any sort of um, apathetic sleep that we have been in. Now, I don't think any of you here need to be jarred out of apathy this morning. That's not why I did this one. But I do suspect that some of us here this morning or maybe some of the mama bears listening online just need to hear Jesus and his prophets give voice to the anger and the hurt and the frustration with much of the religious landscape. And all of us need to understand that the voices of the marginalized and of the oppressed, they contain a myriad of emotions. Anger is certainly not the only one, but it's one that's often um, dismissed or derided because it makes us uncomfortable. But the Bible embraces it as a faithful way to talk about our anger and hurt and frustration and the harm that's been done to the people who are the most vulnerable. So before we dig into Ezekiel, I just want to make a note, because both Ezekiel and Jesus, who we're going to look at, both of them lived during times when their people were literally about to be crushed by an oncoming army. Right? So Ezekiel lived in a time when the Babylonians were about to come and um, occupied Jerusalem and destroy it and carry people off, and Jesus lived just before the Romans conquered Jerusalem. So in loosely applying their words to our current, what I would call toxic religious landscape in America, I'm not necessarily predicting anything like immediate and dire. But I'm also not necessarily not predicting anything immediate and dire. Right? I think only time can tell that story. But what I do know is that a lot of the things that Jesus and the other prophets were railing against in their times are happening today, and that that should be enough for us to at least have our eyes and our ears perked up. 
So I'm going to start with a story about Ezekiel. And that story goes like this. A long time ago, there lived a prophet named Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was part of a people who had a long history with God. They understood that the God that they served had called them to be like a beacon of justice and peace in the world. And so at various times in their history, Ezekiel's people had like instituted groundbreaking laws and practices that helped humans be treated with more dignity. But as all peoples are wont to do from time to time, Ezekiel's people had forgotten who they were. And they started mistreating the vulnerable. And violence increased among them and corruption among their elite was rampant. And so God told Ezekiel, his prophet, he said, go and tell the people that if you don't clean up your act, your violence and your corrupt ways will be your undoing. And so Ezekiel went to them and he told them what God had instructed him to say. And he warned them about their violence and their bloodshed and their violence and their bloodshed and their violence and their bloodshed over and over and over. And he also warned them about the ways that they used power against the powerless for gain and the ways they oppressed the foreigners who were living in their land and the ways they mistreated the fatherless and the widows and the ways that men were using their power to sleep with all of the women and their families, their mothers, their sisters, their aunts, their cousins, in a time when women had little recourse for justice. And all of these things, Ezekiel warned them, he said, that will be your downfall. And God was particularly upset, Ezekiel told them, with the self-styled prophets, with the ones who went around telling people that nothing was actually wrong, who went around just saying, you know, we're fine if our rulers are a little corrupt. Well, what rulers aren't? Our business leaders and our, our money lenders and our judges, you know, there's a few bad eggs, but overall things are okay. God's not upset with us. Just ignore the people who are making you feel anxious, who are calling for reforms, ignore the idealists, and certainly ignore that crotchety young lad Ezekiel and his ilk, right? What does he know? There's nothing but peace, peace in our time, they would say. But their corrupt ways did, in fact, bring them to ruin. And so when Ezekiel was just 25 years old, he and his wife um, were carried off by the Babylonians after they attacked his weakened nation and they were brought into captivity as Jerusalem was burned to the ground, and both the temple and the walls were destroyed. And to the best of our knowledge, Ezekiel lived out the rest of his days in captivity in Babylon. Right? So that's not a happy story. I want us to listen to the specific words, though, that God gave to Ezekiel to speak to the religious leaders who were telling everybody that their way of doing things was fine. Ezekiel 13. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets who are saying that everything's fine. Say to those who prophesy out of their own imagination, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets are like jackals among ruins. I like that picture. Their visions are false, their divinations a lie. Even though the Lord hasn't sent them, they say the Lord declares and they expect the Lord to fulfill their words. But this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because of your false words and your lying visions, I am against you. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations because they're leading my people astray and they're saying peace, peace when there is no peace. And because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. Therefore, tell those who cover it with whitewash that it's going to fall. Right? So in other words, 
the words of the false prophets, of these faith leaders who were bolstering the corrupt systems, Ezekiel tells us that their words are like flimsy walls, right? that they mean nothing, and that they can cover those walls, those wobbly walls with whitewash, all that they want to try and hide the cracks in their self-serving theologies, but still, those walls will fall. Now, when I first met Rachel, and I could tell that this was going to be a serious relationship that we were in, I freaked out a little bit. And, I mean, not because of Rachel, she was wonderful, <laughs> but for, you know, all of the reasons that came to pass. And Ken was my boss at the time, and he knew that I was gay, but I knew I needed to tell him that I had met someone. And I was scared to tell him, because I knew what it might mean. And by that time, he had written, he had released his book, A Letter to My Congregation, talking about LGBTQ inclusion. We were well on our way to transitioning our former church, but I knew that having me in an actual relationship changed the game. You know, so I kind of hadn't been dating, but then, I mean, Rachel. <laughs> and so I wasn't sure if Ken was going to respond with high anxiety or not. And it turned out, of course he didn't. He was wonderful because he's him. And so he was in my office and I told him that I had met Rachel, whom he actually had known before, actually, and thought how well of her. He put his head down in his lap and he started crying, mostly for joy, I think. And I offered to resign and he said, no, that's, that's ridiculous. But before all of that happened, I was afraid, right? So I went to a trusted pastor friend of mine, um, Brooke Pickrell, who pastors Northside Presbyterian. And I met with her and I said, okay, Brooke, here's the situation that I'm in. And so she gave me some really great counsel and she prayed with me there in her office. But something that she said really stuck in my brain. And this is what she said. There was just like, there was like this quiet power behind it. She said, Emily, regardless of what happens, that witness to Jesus, so that witness that says that gay people aren't fully included in the family of God, she said, that witness will fall. She said, it will not stand. And I remember that kind of like going through me like, oh. She said, the church is finding that God's expansive love is bigger than we ever realized. And many people might not see it. And it might ebb and flow in history and that, um, that witness may hang around for a while, but in the end, if God is who we believe that God is, that witness will not stand. And there was something that was just like so comforting to me in that moment. It just felt so Jesus-like, like I just needed to hear that. It was like God is on your side, regardless of what happens. You are accepted. And I think as a person on the underside of power, that was really helpful just to feel like, okay, I've got Emmanuel, God with me. And it became one of the stakes that I kind of held on to when like the proverbial stuff hit the fan, right? It's like that witness will not stand ultimately come what may. And what she was really telling me here was in the line of this prophetic tradition, that queer exclusion from the church was a flimsy wall that would have been whitewashed with thin theology and that it won't stand. And I found that like in, in, in my pastoral um, role with this church that it's a lot of what I end up doing is just um, like naming and affirming for people things that they're seeing, that they've been told like it's not that big of a deal. And that seems to be like one of the most healing things that people can hear, like no, you were actually, that was actually an abusive system. Um, because there's this sort of gaslighting that can go on in these big systems. So I'm just going to name a few of these flimsy walls that maybe we've, we've experienced. I think reading the Bible as literal and inerrant is a flimsy wall 
that easily topples on close examination. That we proclaim that scripture is holy and it's inspired, but literal and inerrant it is not. And that that's a relatively new idea in history. And the ex-evangelical ethicist, Dr. David Gushy, who's a good friend of our church, um, he was lamenting on Facebook that a narrow understanding of how to read scripture has just left so many post-evangelicals in like a needless crisis of faith. And he said, it's like, it's like a whitewashed wall and that that relatively young wall will fall. It's already in the process. Reading the story of Jesus' crucifixion as just a simple bloody transaction between God and Satan is a flimsy wall and that there are far better and far richer interpretations. But when I'm on these evangelical sites, so many people have walked away from faith because they just can't get a hold of that. Saying that men are made for leadership and that women are made to serve men is a flimsy wall that will fall. Posturing American evangelicals as a persecuted minority is a flimsy wall with giant gaping cracks and that wall will fall. When seven in 10 white evangelicals stand with a president who says that there are good people on both sides of a white nationalism march and its counter-protest, we see the flimsy wall of racism laid bare, a wall that many faith leaders have supported and literally covered with whitewash. Yeah. At Diane Sonda's recommendation, I've been reading this book, um, it's called Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. And so because of my concussion, I still listen on Audible. So I'm like walking through the park and I'm just listening to this book. And at times I'm just like, just weeping because it's like, I know like you guys will probably think my walks in the park are weird because that's where I do all of my praying. And so I, I end up kind of moved a lot, but I already knew this to be true, but it still kind of astonishes me how Christianity was used over and over and over and over and over again in our history to justify white racial superiority. And it is taking a long time for that wall to come tumbling down and it will eventually tumble down and it may take a lot longer, but that wall will not stand. When evangelical leaders stand beside corrupt government leaders and they say, there's nothing to look at here, folks, it's fake news. No treason, no sexual assault, no misuse of power, peace, peace, when there is no peace, that is a flimsy wall. And God told Ezekiel to prophesy against flimsy walls. He told his prophet, he says, rain will come in torrents. I will send hailstones hurtling down. Violent winds will burst forth. Now we understand when we read words like this in scripture, these are supposed to be um, like metaphorical, right? Apocalyptic literature isn't necessarily literal. It's not like hailstones and actual winds, right? It's powerful poetic metaphors that convey the emotion that is behind it. Right? And God said to Ezekiel, when that wall collapses, people will, um, will people not ask you, where is the whitewash that covered it? It looked so strong. Put that back on. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. He says, in my wrath, I will unleash a violent wind. And in my anger, hailstones and torrents of rain will fall with destructive fury. And I will tear down the wall that you've covered with whitewash. And I will level it to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. And when it falls, you'll be destroyed in it. And you will know that I am the Lord apocalyptic language. So I will pour out my wrath against the wall and against those who covered it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is gone. And so are those who whitewashed it. Those prophets who prophesied to Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord. All right, you hear the tone of this. These are harder ones usually to preach from because the tone is a little arresting. 
But Ezekiel's prophetic words here, they sound an awful lot like how Jesus sounded in Matthew 23. I called my sister, who's also been doing some preaching, and I I told her Matthew 23. She goes, oh, you're going to do the woe to yous. And I said, oh, I am. (laughs) You know, Jesus isn't recorded as spending a whole lot of time preaching against other faith leaders, and nor do I want to spend most of my time or my pulpit energy critiquing what I feel like I've already left behind, right? I'm far more like invigorated and energized by reimagining um, like what we're doing here, right? Reimagining faith for the future. But Jesus did this on occasion, and he did it to validate the people who were still on the underside of power, and he had the freedom to tell the truth to others about what he was seeing. And he condemned what was hurting the people who were being hurt by it. And one of the reasons that so many people identify as ex-evangelical or even just formally Christian, like they just washed their hands of it, is because they didn't feel the freedom to tell the truth about what they saw when people were being harmed in their context. They were shushed or silenced or kicked out. So let's hear the words of Jesus, bearing in mind he's talking specifically to religious teachers, right? Not, not to your grandma who sits in the pew every Sunday in an evangelical church, right? He's talking to leaders here. He says, woe to you, religious teachers, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's face. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let anybody else enter with you. Woe to you, religious teachers, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. That'd be a great like horror movie film name. Sorry, it's off. I didn't mean to say that, but child of hell. Happy October. Woe to you, religious teachers, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin, but you've neglected the more important aspects of the law. You've neglected justice, you've neglected mercy, and you've neglected faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, you blind guides. You strain out a gnat, just picture this, you strain out a gnat, but then you swallow a camel. Woe to you, you religious teachers, you hypocrites. You clean out the outside of a dish, a cup and dish, but inside it's full of corruption and self-indulgence. You blind guide. First, clean out the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. What this made me think of is, man, you get gussied up for Sunday, but underneath we know that there is a mound of sexual assault and abuse charges that are bubbling up from the surface of evangelicalism, just as it has in Catholicism. You blind guides. Woe to you, religious teachers, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. Right? Who's Jesus channeling here in his tradition? He's channeling Ezekiel. He's also channeling Jeremiah and Amos, who also talked about whitewashed walls. And it's almost like Jesus is playing poker here. And he's like, okay, I see your whitewashed walls. I'm going to raise you a tomb. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of bones of everything that is dead and unclean. And in the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, you religious teachers, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets, and you decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if, you know, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. And I thought, man, what, what's a good like, example today? It'd be like, no, if I had lived during the civil rights movement, I would have totally stood with the African-American protesters. Would? Would you? Jesus says, go ahead then. Complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? 
Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers, and some of them you're going to kill and you're going to crucify. Others you're going to flog in your churches and you're going to pursue them from town to town, from Facebook to Twitter to Snapchat. And so upon you, I mean, Jesus is like on a roll here, all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar, truly I tell you, all this will come on in a generation. And I'm telling you, like, I, I love Jesus in so many of the environments that we see him in. You know, like when he's cuddling the children, let the children come to me, when he's laying hands on the sick. But I have to tell you guys, like, the part of Jesus that I've probably always been the most drawn to here is apocalyptic Jesus. You brood of vipers. I just like, oh. It's like the part of him that makes me feel like he gets it. He gets the part of me that has been harmed by toxic religion. It's like he's standing beside you and saying, you brood of vipers. He sees it and he understands it and he says, no more, that witness will not stand. You know, this, just this last week, um, Ken and I, we get, we get emails from all over the country, from pastors and from different people. And it probably feeds into this, like we're hearing from all these ex-evangelical voices from all around the country that our churches and people are hearing about what's going on here. And so I, I got a Facebook message from an old college friend of mine. We were good friends in undergrad. And she's got three kids and her oldest um, is a queer, is queer child. And her family had been attending an evangelical mega church. And she said they thought that they were safe. She's like, they kept giving us all the welcoming language. She said that the main pastor actually has a trans son. So they thought, okay, we'll be all right here. Only to realize once they pushed that they weren't. And so she sent me a letter that she wrote to the youth pastors after they had taught their large youth group um, that queer kids were welcome but were sinning. And it was just this incredible letter because it was like, I thought, oh, she can see. She was just cutting through all of the BS and she was citing suicide stats for queer kids who hear non-inclusive messages at churches, you're like four times as likely to commit suicide. If you're a queer kid in a conservative church, like four times. And it was like so angry and it was so clear and I was just pacing outside and I was thinking about her and I was like, I mean, what she was basically saying is like, what are you doing to my kid? You know, like, what are you doing to my kid? And so they left. But for me, that, that's righteous anger. And then I read a, a blog post from a, a person that a, a common friend introduced us to. So I don't know if you guys know, October 11th is National Coming Out Day. And so there's a lot of people on Twitter and Facebook and such that use that, that time to come out. Um, Rich, or no, Tim Kaleski, he's not here this morning, but he said that he used that day to come out at his workplace. Um, so this woman wrote, and I asked her if I could use part of hers because I thought she kind of captures this feeling really well. She said, I want to write an eloquent coming out story for National Coming Out Day, but I'm too angry. And I want to explain what it was like to come out to myself as bisexual as a 32-year-old woman, but I'm too angry. And I want to talk about what it was really like to be part of Hollywood's hippest evangelical church as a closeted bisexual person, but I'm too angry. And I want to talk about what it's like to have an ocean of rage bubbling up to the surface after hiding out as a Christian, for, as a straight person in Christian churches for years while repressing my gayness, but I'm too angry. So I've read a lot, I know a lot, I've talked to a lot of pastors, I've sat in their living rooms, I've asked the hard questions, I've read all the books. I know what various biblical translations say. I want you to know about my knowing and show you what a wise, educated, LGBTQ Christian I am. But I'm too, I'm too angry to quote all the scholars. 
I want to tell you about the psychological impact that internalized homophobia and self-prejudice has had on me, but I'm too angry. I didn't mean to write such an angry coming out letter, but forgive me, I'm angry. Yeah. But this is the part that, that I really resonated with. She said, you know what's amazing, though? She said, there's one being I'm not angry at, and to my amazement, it's God. She said, as I buckled on my knees in pain one morning in heaving sobs, the anger just too deep, I heard a voice clearly, calmly, and grounded. And I'd like to believe this voice was God. And all this voice said was, I'm angry too. You feel angry because I gave you anger. And I know you're hurting, and I'm hurting with you. And I know that I, I had a really similar experience to that. Um, but in all of my own anger or whatever, I never felt like God was angry with me. In fact, it was this still small voice that said, try being angry with me. Like, I'm angry also. Um, and help me channel that anger toward working towards something better. So the message this morning is just simply this. It's appropriate to be angry in the face of injustice. It's appropriate to be angry at the utter impotence of much of the church to be able to name what's happening in our culture right now. You don't have to be angry all the time. Probably most of us aren't in like a super angry place. And for those of you who might be like, you know, that's not where I'm at. Maybe you're just like, I just had a kid. God, I'm just trying to survive. <laughs> trying to get through your next job interview. That's totally fine. But I think we have to understand this aspect of our tradition so that when we hear the anger in the voices of minorities and in the voices of some of our fellow congregants, and maybe most especially people who might be newer coming in and expressing that, that we can recognize that this is part of our tradition. And in fact, it's a really key part of it. Right? You can say, I can hear that. I can hear you're telling the truth the best way you're able to, and I believe you. Because God was angry, and Ezekiel was angry, and Jeremiah, and Amos, and Jesus were angry, and they channeled that anger into interpreting scripture in a way that was helpful for the vulnerable. And then they brought that energy into trying to create a better world for people. Right? And so they called the people their time to be better because they actually had faith that something better was possible. And, right? and that's, that's what I choose to believe, that something better is possible. And I was telling the people who came to the vision meeting this morning, to me, that's like one of the main purposes of our church, actually. It's to try and reimagine. We're in this weird state. We're like right in the middle, I think, of a massive 200-year change um, that is going on in the church where there's a lot of people deconstructing some of the things that haven't been working. And we're just on the, the very beginning of the birth of reimagining what, what a faith community might be able to be like in a more healthy way going forward. And so that's this strange space that we find ourselves. And so when we're all coming together in that space, we just have to recognize that there's myriad emotions. You know, and you might be a person who's had a little more privilege. And so like Pete was talking about this morning, like, oh, I, don't, I just didn't know. And I got older and I got wiser and I started to listen. And that it's helpful for people like me or for other um, minorities who come in to have somebody be like, okay, I hear you. I hear you. I don't want you to have to feel that way. And that's part of creating the healing space for going forward. So with that, let's um, we'll do a meditation. We often do two or three minutes of either silence or guided meditation. And I think we're going to spend most of it in silence, but I, I have a verse from a psalm that I thought we could just meditate on together. And you could let, you could let God, however you picture God or love, um, just take this and speak to you as you will. And the psalm is this. I called to God for my narrowness, 
and God answered me with a vast expanse. I called to God from my narrowness, and God answered me with a vast expanse. feeling a little nudge, maybe the Holy Spirit, maybe not, um, to just pray using this verse, just getting a sense there might be um, some people for whom maybe you feel like you've fallen into sort of a critical pattern with your partner, spouse, a kid, or you know somebody in your life. Um, you feel like you're looking at a very narrow part of them and feeling very critical about it, and almost like God wants to expand your mind so that you can like see the whole picture. Um, and that that might be a helpful tool instead of narrowing in on this one thing about the person to be grateful for the entirety. So, Lord, for whomever that might be meaningful, I just I ask, Lord, that you would help us um, take us from a place of seeing narrowness or from seeing small slices of people or situations and that you would help us be open um, to a vast expanse and to feeling grateful um, for the bigger pictures that are going on, Lord, there can be so many things that go on in our lives that just feel like they're just hard to get through. And that you would help us to see our place in the larger picture and the relationships and the people around us who love us and support us and embrace us um, just with gratitude. And that we would really embrace your vast expanse of love that you have for all of your children. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.